0: Let's begin here this afternoon, as mentioned, with the latest on Bill C-21. The federal government has backed down from some controversial changes to Bill C-21. The uh, federal justice minister uh, was on the West Block with Mercedes Stevenson on the weekend. And here's what he had to say about that.
1: Well I think we listened and we heard, uh, we, it was never our intention to, to go after hunting uh, rifles, it was always our intention to go after handguns and assault rifles. And um, we heard a number of, of important uh, voices in the community, particularly Paulie Sous-Souvien, who wanted a, a, a definition, an evergreen definition. And, and so we tried it, um, we didn't quite get it right, it had a little too much reach. But a little too broad. And uh, we're, so we're, we're pulling it and going back to the drawing board.
0: Okay, so they screwed up. They meant to go after assault rifles, was the term he used, not hunting rifles. Hunting rifles are okay, assault rifles are bad. But what they want is an evergreen definition for what constitutes an assault-style weapon. And here's what he said uh, about that.
1: In, in fairness, it's actually quite a difficult exercise to create an evergreen definition.
0: Well, that's one way to put it. Our next guest says it's more than just difficult. What the liberals are actually trying to do here is impossible. Matt Gurney is a columnist, a co-founder at The Line, theline.substack.com. And he's got a really interesting overview of how the liberals created such a mess for themselves on this file and why they put themselves in a position where there may be no way to get themselves out of. Matt Gurney, has mentioned, uh, with The Line, theline.substack.com on with us uh, here this afternoon. Matt, great to have you with us. Welcome back to the program.
2: Always a pleasure to be here and to try and distill 40 years of gun knowledge into, what, what eight minutes?
0: Yeah, exactly. But let's start with an interesting point you've made here that maybe people don't fully appreciate. that The liberals admitted, you know, they screwed up. They didn't get it right. They're going to try harder this time. But you make the argument that what they're trying to do really can't be done
2: yeah and I think you know when I wrote my column earlier in the week, that's I mean I explicitly promised the listeners, probably the the readers, that I was not going to do political analysis. I just wasn't going to do it. What I was going to do instead was I was going to try and explain to them what happened, and what I think happened here was that probably to an extent without realizing it, the liberals backed themselves into a corner where they've made incompatible promises. And, you know, on the one hand, they're trying to... I don't want to say they're trying to keep hunters and indigenous Canadians happy, because they're definitely not. Right. But they're trying not to sort of unduly provoke them. So that's one set of promises they've made. They've also obviously got uh, the kind of the gun control lobby, which uh, they're politically aligned with, and they're trying to keep them happy. And they're also promising that they want to come up with what they're calling an evergreen definition, kind of like a coherent technical standard for gun control, which I think would be a good thing. Mm -hmm. The problem is they're not going to be able to do all three of those things. They can do two of those things, and they can pick which two of those things they do, but they're not going to be able to do all three. There is not going to be a coherent technical standard that can keep millions of angry Canadians happy and also satisfy the gun control lobby. It just doesn't exist.
0: Right. So for people who don't know, and you laid out in, in the piece, so we basically got the three categories that firearms fall fall under, right? Uh, so there's non-restricted, restricted, and prohibited. And, and maybe to some extent it is a little bit arbitrary which goes into which column. But that, that's largely been how guns are classified in this country.
2: Yeah, it's how guns have been classified in this country since the 1990s. And I think, you know, the system we have is definitely not perfect. Um, There are a lot of weird little absurdities and inconsistencies in our existing system. But the system overall did make sense. And then what happened almost from the outset, you know, what? not even almost at the outset of the system, The Liberals started to carve exceptions into it. And this is why they're talking about wanting a coherent, evergreen standard now. They've carved, they spent 30 years carving out so many little exceptions to what the rules actually are. The rules don't really make any sense. So you've got the Liberals trying to ban what they call an assault-style rifle that has now a special status that the government has given it. And they're also trying not to ban a hunting rifle that is basically the exact same thing. And this is the problem they've created for themselves. They've basically said, we're totally okay with these guns, hunters and carry Price, so don't be mad at us. But don't worry, gun control lobby. We hate these guns, and we're going to ban them. And anyone who actually understands the gun control file knows that they're not actually that different. In some cases, they're functionally identical. So the liberals are going to have to make a call here. Like I said to you a minute ago, they cannot have all three things they want. So they can have a technical standard, an evergreen, coherent, technical definition of guns that tells you what kind of gun goes into which category. But they're going to have to draw the line somewhere. And that's either going to ban more guns than they want, and then Kerry Price is going to be very angry at them, along with a few million other people. Or they can ban fewer guns than they want and keep Kerry Price and his buddies happy, but now you've angered the gun control lobby. Or you can keep doing these special carve-outs where you go, well, this gun is good and this gun is bad, but there goes your evergreen technical definition. Nothing they're trying to do is impossible. They've painted themselves into a corner, and they've promised to do three things at once. They can only do two of them.
0: Well, and this all comes down to the notion that, you know, the liberals wanted to ban assault-style weapons, and that's the term they've chosen, and it's, it's certainly very political, but technically speaking, in terms of being able to apply that definition to a, any given firearm, that, does it have any actual technical meaning?
2: No, no, it doesn't. And that's why in this country, well, I mean, I mean, well, actually, let me rephrase that. The liberals are trying to give it a technical meaning. Right. And that's why they're getting in trouble. So there isn't sort of some automatic on the shelf technical definition that they can point to. Like there's not something that's universally recognized by experts or law enforcement or anything like that. So the liberals have to come up with one. And they have to put it into Canadian law. That's what they're trying to do here. That's where they got themselves into trouble. Their amendments that got them into trouble, effectively, were coming up with what that definition could be. But as soon as they came up with it, they realized that instead of banning the, the 20-some-odd rifles they wanted to, to ban with uh, back in 2020, they've actually gone out and they've banned thousands of rifles that fit that definition. And we, I mean thousands of kinds of rifles, well, actually millions of individual firearms that are already owned by Canadians here. The, the hilarious thing is, Rob, is that like no one has ever accused me of being a liberal apologist here, but I have definitely tried to warn them about this. I have told them repeatedly over the years, you're not going to be able to come up with a definition that divides these two things from each other in a way that makes any sense. And that's what they're running into right now. And I don't know. I guess Justin Trudeau doesn't listen to me for some reason. He should. (laughs) I'm a really well-meaning guy.
0: Yeah, I would say say so. I'm trying
2: to do him a favor here. And I think my honest-to-God opinion, and this has actually been backed up by some reporting in the Toronto Star, is that the Liberals didn't really know what they were doing here. And uh, it was Stephanie Levitz in the Toronto Star who kind of wrote last week a big, big piece on basically what the hell happened. And one of the things she was told, apparently, according to her reporting by multiple uh, senior liberal sources, is that the government basically dropped the ball. They didn't talk about it enough internally. There weren't enough briefings. There wasn't a coherent messaging plan. And they were kind of playing defense from the outset. Okay. I, uh, fair. I mean, I think that's really stupid of them, and they should go in the penalty box and feel shame. But let's let's take that at their word. It's not a good thing, Rob, when your government responds to ultimately valid and accurate criticism by screaming disinformation. But that does seem to be this government's go-to when they're being criticized. So what I was saying about them in November and December, they were saying, oh, that's conservative misinformation. And yet it's what they're admitting to in February. So what a two-month trip that was, going from the liberals saying that my statements were um, just misinformation going all the way to, well, it turns out they were right, we apologize, and we're going to try again.
0: So we're back to the problem they had initially, where we've got a, a very arbitrary list uh, of firearms that we've decided are, are bad and scary. And when the prime minister stands up and says we're talking about guns that are, in his words, designed to kill as many people as possible in the shortest amount of time, it, it's hard to understand how that applies to some of these and not these others. It, it's, we're, we're back to this original mess here, aren't we? Yes.
2: Yeah. And fundamentally, what the original mess is, and this is something the liberals have been trying to do for years, and again, I tried to warn them, is that they're taking a bunch of guns that exist in Canada today and are owned, again, by millions of Canadians. Millions of Canadians own potentially tens of millions of these kinds of guns. And they're trying to find a way... And all these guns are basically functionally pretty similar to each other. right? And they're trying to find a way... To say that some of them are good and some of them are bad and the reason they want to do this is so that they can say we banned the bad guns anyone who has spent any time looking at the liberals in recent years in office knows this they got a lot louder at this after they lost their majority in 2019 and they've been trying to find good wedge issues ever since this is one of their favorite go-to's so The Canadian gun control, as it existed beginning of the 1970s and then in the 1990s, did a pretty good job, not perfect, but, like, reasonably good job actually dividing guns up into categories of similar guns. And the liberals come along and they're like, oh, hang on, but we want to ban guns. So we need to take this big blob of rifles and we need to basically say – Okay, well, we're not going to ban most of these because we would never want to upset Kerry Price. But we're going to have to ban some of these because they're really, really dangerous. And what they're realizing now is that there's no way to divide these two groups away from each other. The notion that some of these guns are good and some of them are bad is not logical. It's just nothing. There's no coherent basis for that. So the liberals can basically go, hey, we're going to ban all of them. And that would be popular. Like, a lot of people would like that, particularly, I would guess, in the greater Toronto area in Quebec. Sure. But then they got all this blowback, or they're going to have to admit they're all fine and they're not banning any of them, and then they're in trouble. There's just, they're trying to find a way to take two things that are similar and convince us that they're different, and they can't do it.
0: It feels like that's probably the most likely outcome here, that they'll just press ahead with an illogical and incoherent approach and just hope that they can fool enough people uh, to, to get through it.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I think I think this is a government that's in political trouble. I think this is a government that's tired. They're screwing up on a lot of fronts. Guns have been one of their most reliable go to wedges. They reach for it this time and they got themselves in trouble. If they were smart, they would learn some lessons from that. I just don't know if they're smart right now. They they have been traditionally very, very good politicians. I've always said, even when I'm critical of liberal policies, they're very good at politics. Starting about the middle of last year, I began writing about this in public, and we've talked about it since yeah. then. They're not very good at politics these days. Their political instincts are off, and they're getting themselves into trouble Part of it, I think, is just eventually you take too many trips to the well, right? You go back to gun control one more time. You throw that barrel down the well, and it just hits muck at the bottom. There's no water left. But I also just think they're exhausted. I think, look, they've been in government for seven years. Governments eventually, it's like it's a force of nature. They eventually get tired. They get sycophantic. They only have yes-men left. They're not getting good advice, Governments get old. I'm not writing these guys off yet, but they're starting to look awful
0: old to me. Yeah, I would agree. Well, your uh, piece, your latest great explainer of all of this, it's up at theline.substack.com. Matt, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. My pleasure. You have a good one, Matt. You too. There you go. Matt Gurney, co-founder, columnist at The Line. It's an interesting piece from Matt on the mess the liberals have created for themselves here. and how do they get out of it? Maybe this all just kind of blows over, but this certainly hasn't worked out as planned. It was 2015 that the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the criminal prohibition on medical assistance in dying. And then the following year, the federal government uh, had to come up with a regime to now oversee and regulate this practice. We've come a long way since then, though. And there's some increasing questions about whether we've gone about this the, the right way. Now, this is an interesting moment because there was some plan changes set for next month that have been delayed for another year that have really focused this question, and and maybe it's an opportunity for us as Canadians to sort of take a step back and and decide where we want this to go. Now, the plan changes would involve mental illness as a criteria, as a a reason why someone could request medical assistance in dying. Uh, Not someone who's suffering from mental illness and another condition, the mental illness itself, could be the criteria. The government's delayed that until March of next year. But what's likely to transpire between now and then? There was an exchange on the West Block on Sunday uh, with uh, Mercedes Stevenson and Federal Justice Minister David Lametti, which he makes some interesting claims about our status quo and what these changes could represent. I want to play that for you here before we get to our, our next guest. Here's what the Justice Minister said.
1: Even if they go in and say I'm experiencing severe that's anxiety, that's right. yeah. depression? Yeah, no,
0: you should. If you're experiencing
1: severe anxiety and and depression, if you're having suicidal thoughts, you should see it. You should seek a doctor's help. You should seek help, friends, hotlines. Help is there. Those people are not eligible for MAID. the re- the regime. And this is this is a bit of a so misconception. So pe- people that's who are suicidal are not eligible. Not at all. This is MAID? These are what you're looking at are are disorders, mental disorders, mental illnesses that have been treated. By experts over a long period of time, uh, and where and where there's no possibility uh, it, it, of, of of improvement, this is this is not a case of suicide. This is some this is a piece an important piece of misinformation that is being frankly advanced by by critics who uh, don't want to see uh, this part of the regime move forward, or indeed want to want to us to back away from previous parts of the Maid regime. This is not meant to apply to people who are having suicidal thoughts. This is not meant for people. But how can you guarantee that if depression is related to suicidal thoughts? Well, the... the, In some people, not in all. The the guidelines that are being, that have been elaborated by the expert committee, we've now got an extra year to make sure that those get out to universities teaching medicine to practitioners, the, the, the various colleges, uh, professional uh, bodies across Canada will be able to internalize these guidelines and, and develop uh, the tools so that this gets out to the profession. Those guidelines are quite severe. What, what we're talking about is a very tiny, tiny fraction of cases Within another tiny fraction of cases, i.e., the non-end-of-life regime cases, vast majority of made cases are
0: end-of-life. Okay, so is that accurate? What the minister says there is there is there a significant difference, by the way, between being suicidal and desiring medical assistance in dying? When it comes to mental illness, the point about incurability or irremediable—what does that mean? How do we test that? So it's a big door we're opening. I want to get some expert perspective on all of this. Dr. Sanu Gand is a professor in the Toronto uh, University of Toronto Faculty of Medicine. He's chief of psychiatry and physician chair of the MAID team at Humber River Hospital. Dr. Gand, uh, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you, Rob. Thank you for having me back on and also for continuing to cover this really complex issue.
0: It is. It's complex, but it clearly it's, it's very important. Uh, your thoughts, first of all, on the, the delay in these changes. The government's put this off for, for a year. What do you make of that?
3: Well, it's a a bit mixed because I think that if government had proceeded with implementing this in March of this year, just a few weeks from now, it would have been incredibly irresponsible. So in that sense, I think that any delay is a good thing. Having said that, I think that it's essential um, to think about what that delay will be used for. And if it is simply used to push the ball further downfield and do the same thing that they had done this time, which is presupposing that made-for-soul mental illness can be safely and responsibly implemented, then nothing has been gained because there's never actually been a proper meaningful review of whether that can safely and responsibly be done. Um, and so, with all respect, I disagree with many of the comments the minister just made.
0: Right. So it seems like what the government's suggesting is that this uh, additional year will give us time to to better prepare to ensure the practitioners are better educated. But it doesn't appear as though the the criteria themselves are going to change. Is that your understanding?
3: Well, what he's talked about is different bodies needing time to, in his term, in his words, internalize guidelines, things like that, you know, we've skipped ahead so many normal, necessary steps that we typically would do in medicine, which is before saying, let's internalize guidelines, actually studying the evidence to see whether it makes sense to implement certain policies. And that has not been done for this issue. The sunset clause that was originally introduced in 2021, which is what would have led to implementing this this year, that was, again, something which said, oh, we're going to do it, not we're going to study whether it should responsibly be done. It's always been essentially a cookbook how-to guidelines that the expert panel was tasked to deliver.
0: So as it stands right now, what, what is the criteria, as best you can summarize it, for uh, an individual requesting medical assistance in dying?
3: So this strikes at the heart of the problem because, and I should point out, I'm not a conscientious objector to right. MAID. I take exception to Minister Lametti's uh, mischaracterization that any concerns being raised are simply efforts to not move the regime forward. Uh, I actually find that somewhat offensive. But um, I'm not a conscientious objector to MAID, and I actually am physician chair of my hospital MAID team. So I've seen the value that MAID can bring in appropriate situations and have been also sensitized to the extreme danger in inappropriate ones. And so when MAID was brought in, and this is actually part of what our guidelines still say, that it was brought in to help relieve suffering from a medical condition that's irremediable, meaning one that will not improve, meaning we need to be able to predict it will not improve. And when it was initially brought in in 2016, there was also a safeguard saying that people needed to have a reasonably foreseeable natural death. In other words, they needed to be in the process of dying, and that could have been something that was even 10 years away. It did not mean that you needed to be at death's door or, you know, a few weeks or a few months away. Even 10 years would have qualified for that. And so, that last safeguard, that one was dropped by the government in 2021. So people no longer need to be in the process of dying. Now people can get it when they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, whatever, all the way up. Mm -hmm. And the safeguard that remains, the one that says the medical condition is one that is irremediable, that it won't get better, that's the one that fundamentally cannot be met for any individual case of mental illness. Because what the evidence shows is that we are completely unable to predict when a mental illness in any person will or will not get better our our chances of doing that our best chances are no better than flipping a coin and so it is very artificial to say that that's what we'd be providing made for for these people for mental illness
0: right and that's a pretty big obstacle that we're going to be in the same position a year from now so do, do we do we abandon these changes? Is there a different way to go about it? What's the responsible path forward here?
3: Well, many of us have said that what this time should be used for is to do a proper, unbiased review of the evidence, and then develop whatever guidelines we think there should be for our future made laws. Not to simply say that oh, um, we're going to implement made for mental illness by such and such a date. And when you listen to the rationale that's given for that, it's supposedly being done in the name of autonomy. But when you expand what we're providing a state-sanctioned death for to people who we can't even honestly say whether they'll get better or not when they have mental illness, and they're in a state of despair and suffering, so they're truly suffering, but they also are likely, more likely to be exposed to social suffering. We know that with people with mental illness, they're often from more marginalized groups. So what do we think is going to happen? We're already seeing people getting made now under the expanded criteria from 2021, who are saying, I was driven to this for my social suffering, for my poverty, for my housing insecurity, for my loneliness not for my medical illness symptoms. My illness symptoms were just the foot in the door. That's already happening. What do we think is going to happen when we expand it even more um, for people in their states of transient despair and suicidality? Yeah. Which is the other point. Uh, we cannot, for, for made when it's offered for conditions when end of life is foreseeable, for other medical conditions, in those situations we can tell the difference between if someone is suicidal or someone who is seeking MAID for end-of-life suffering. However, when you expand MAID to people for soul mental illness, for psychiatric euthanasia, we can no longer tell the difference. Then we cannot tell the difference between people who are what we traditionally consider as suicidal, who benefit from suicide prevention strategies. We can't tell the difference between those people and people seeking psychiatric MAID for other reasons. So we're then also providing aid to Mm -hmm. people in their periods of transient suicidality uh, rather than helping them with suicide prevention and living.
0: Right, which is also important. now. And and just to be clear then, so there there is in a clinical sense a distinction between someone seeking medical assistance and dying and someone that would be considered as, as suicidal.
3: No, not for psychiatric euthanasia. In fact, I, I okay. sat on the um, CCA expert panel. We looked at evidence across the world. And what we actually found is not only is there not a distinction or an ability, there's no ability to make that distinction, there's overlapping characteristics between those groups. Right. And people tend to get it when they also have unresolved psychosocial suffering in those groups with a two-to-one female-to-male uh, preponderance or, or ratio. And, and so this is something that both Minister Lametti and um, Minister Bennett have completely minimized, if not ignored, yeah. and, and have provided false reassurances that we can somehow separate people who are suicidal from those who are seeking psychiatric euthanasia. That is simply not true. In my opinion, that is dangerous misinformation coming from federal ministers of justice and federal ministers of mental health and addictions, providing a false
0: sense of safety
3: that does not exist.
0: We'll leave it on that note. Uh, Dr. Gant, appreciate your insight on all of this, and uh, thanks again for making some time for us here today.
3: Thanks again. Really tough topic. Um, Hope everyone has good evenings, though.
0: All right. Thanks again. All the best. Uh, Dr. Sonu Gand is a professor of the uh, Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto. He's the chair of the MAID team, also chief of psychiatry at Humber River Hospital. So this falls right in his his wheelhouse, his field of expertise, dealing with medical assistance and dying and dealing with some of these psychiatric issues. And this is not somebody, as he said, who's who's an objector to medical assistance and dying. He's a part of that, but has some really serious concerns here about what these changes represent. And these problems don't vanish, you know, in, in 13 months from now. next guest will soon have written about every number one song, part of his uh, number ones column at uh, Stereogum.com, where he's also a senior ed- editor. But his new book is a focus on 20 specifically and what they represent about significant moments and trends and changes in popular music history and the way in which we decide what makes uh, a number one song in the first place. The book is called The Number Ones, 20 Chart Topping Hits That Reveal the History of Pop Music. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is its author, Tom Bryan joins us here tom great to have you with us welcome to the program
4: thanks so much for having me
0: it is interesting because you know despite everything that's changed in in music uh, being number one still matters i mean do you think that's still true and, and why is that
4: it absolutely matters i would say it matters uh more now than it has in in some recent years i think uh I think a big part of the reason is you can now kind of see the data that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Like it used to be this kind of mysterious foreign entity, like like some some deity out there was uh, was deciding what was the number one song in America. And now it's like it's based on a few things. It's based on sales and radio play, but it's also based on streaming. And you can look on Spotify and see down to the number, like how many streams a given song has. And so it becomes this kind of like... It becomes a stat, you know, following it becomes kind of like following a a team that you like or whatever. And a lot of fans really, really strongly identify with the artist that they like and and have a a very, I would say, vested interest in whatever whatever charge you get out of it's like watching a team win a championship, watching your favorite artist score a number one hit. It, It definitely matters to people.
0: It does. Uh, You know, it's interesting. You know, the the 20 songs you focus on in this book now, some are are huge hits by huge artists. I mean, you know, the Beatles, Michael Jackson, Prince, et cetera. But there are also some much lesser known accent songs that were certainly number ones nonetheless. But it's interesting what what kind of each of them represents. So as you've gone through all of the number one hits, how do you drill down on on these 20s and, and, you know, what it is you think they kind of represent?
4: Well, it's, you know, I've been, for a few years now, I've been working on this project where I'm reviewing every single number one song, and there's been more than a thousand of them, and if you do this for long enough, if you kind of, like, immerse yourself in the way this history moves, you can kind of... Map out these these pivot points, these these turning points where something comes along and everything starts to shift. Like uh, one of the songs in the book, and the one that people seem to kind of probably recognize the least is a uh, Rock Your Baby by George McRae, and I put that in there because from where I'm sitting, it's the first real disco number one. Mm-hmm. And and so disco is a kind of a nebulous thing. It's hard to say what exactly qualifies as a disco song. It, it wasn't like a, somebody was like, I'm going to make the first disco song, and it came out. It uh, but, but it really becomes striking when you look at the, the, the sort of arc of history, how, like, this one song comes along and then all of a sudden everything shifts in that direction for a good like five years. And, and, and then the sort of the strands of it, the, the elements of disco, even after disco itself fades away, the, the the sounds and the ideas, they're all still in there and they're all, you know, they're still there now.
0: Yeah. And that's what's interesting, too. And it gets back to, to kind of the initial point here that, you know, th- these are influential songs and influenced other artists and, and helped launch new trends. But it's almost like the fact that they were number one songs was was a huge factor.
4: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's, it's always interesting to kind of see uh, uh, an idea or a or a genre or an artist even kind of percolating on the underground for a while and then suddenly breaking through and being the biggest thing in the world and uh you know lots of times it never happens sometimes it happens instantaneously and sometimes it happens over a very very long drawn out period of time like i i have a chapter in the book about ice ice baby by vanilla ice which at least in america was the first rap song that ever went to to number one and you know that's Ten years of the genre being a presence on the pop charts, you guys in Canada, you guys took Rapper's Delight by Sugar Hill Gang to number one in, like, 1980. So right. you guys got us beat by a, a solid <laughs> there. You go. there. Um, but in America, you know, it took time. It's, uh, the stuff had to, had to bubble and percolate for a long time.
0: Uh, yeah, and th- that's a great example of you know the the charts finally catching up to where the culture was at. But there was some changes too, and it really opened the floodgates because it it took this this white guy this this you know kind of vanilla pardon the pun uh, rap hit to to get to number one. But then you know after that you had you know Dr. Dre hitting number one. So it it really represented an interesting moment, didn't it?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And so, and and uh, in the book, I kind of write about how. In a in a sort of vague and circuitous way, the rise of Vanilla Ice led to the rise of Dr. Dre. Not just because the sort of the gangster rap that the Dre represented rose up as kind of a reaction against Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer and all these like pop rap acts, Marky Mark that were big in the like the very early '90s, but also like Shug Knight, who was Dr. Dre's partner in Death Row Records, literally shook Vanilla Ice down for royalty. That's right. <laughs> Represented another rapper who claimed that he'd written "Ice Ice Baby," and then I signed a bunch of royalties over to him. And then two years later, Death Row Records starts. It's uh, it's 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 one of these funny occurrence occasions where, like, you can not only trace the sort of like vague nebulous influence, you can trace the like direct. Oh, like this guy put money into this, and so this happened
0: yeah and it's weird too because you know i mean mc hammer had a huge hit around the time too and this sort of speaks to how weird the whole system was because a lot of it depended on you know whether record labels would release songs as a single or whether they wanted to push people to buy the whole album and that really kind of skewed the charts so that that did change at a certain point though didn't it it did
4: it did the the hot 100 you know been around since 1958, and it's been this evolving beast where uh, Billboard puts different rules into effect, and you can see the way they shape the charts, and then you can kind of see the way they shape popular perceptions of music and even like music history. Like in the early 90s, Billboard started using this thing called SoundScan, which instead of just Radio stations calling in and saying what they played, and record stores calling, literally calling Billboard and being like, "Yeah, these were our best sellers this week." There was suddenly electronic data to trace who was buying what, and it suddenly turned out that uh, like hardcore rap music and metal and country were all way more popular than anybody realized, and and so you kind of saw the the music industry scrambling to to understand and to keep up with that and, uh, and it led to a lot of changes over the next few years now you see it with streaming uh, uh, artists who would have been considered sort of like underground cult rappers are now scoring number one hits because people can see how much their songs are getting streamed on YouTube or Spotify or whatever
0: Can we take that model I, I don't know to what extent we can but when you look back when you go even further and you look at the, the number ones of the 60s and the 70s you know, to envision a world where SoundScan exists or even somehow digital streaming exists, would, would things have looked a lot different then, do you think?
4: I would love to know. I would dearly love to know. There's all, there's all sort of stories from, like, the early 70s about, like, um, uh, music critics being totally shocked that, like, Grand Funk Railroad could sell out a football stadium in Kansas. Yeah. You know, like, there's these kinds of music that were sort of—they uh, were popular— but they were not sort of well-regarded. And like, uh, you know, like would Black Sabbath have a number one song? Would Led Zeppelin have a number one song? Grand Song Railroad actually do have a couple number one songs, but that came sort of after they kind of embraced the idea of being a pop act and after they had, you know, been this sludgy hard rock thing that was massively popular all across the country, yeah. uh, and, and not popular among critics or record label people or any of those people at all. It, it, so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to know. It's that's the sort of the 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 back and forth between. The, the music business and the people actually paying for the music. It's 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 an evolving conversation. It always has been.
0: Yeah. Look, I mean, Beatlemania was real. I mean, the, you know, the Motown hit machine was real. Uh, no doubt, whatever the model was at the time, these big acts were going to be big acts.
4: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And, and, uh, and, and you know, some of that stuff was, you know, there's a there's famous, I write about it in the book, where, like, Capitol Records did not want to put the Beatles out in America. They thought that uh, that there was no audience for it here. They had the Beach Boys and they were good. Yeah. And it took it took a lot of pressure. It took uh, it's Brian Epstein putting this like full court press in and it took uh, it took a sort of what amounted to grassroots buzz for the Beatles. Like their first single over here came out a bunch of weeks earlier because a DJ in Washington, D.C. started playing an import copy that he got from a stewardess. And so Capitol had to keep all the record plants open on Christmas and press up as many copies of the single as they could.
0: Yeah, isn't it interesting how through all of this, the record companies, uh, you know, they, they succeed in spite of themselves and their resistance Uh-oh. to certain acts, their resistance to certain trends, uh, and inevitably they, they end up reaping the benefits.
4: Absolutely. It is amazing. But, you know, there's a ton of stories about record label people saying, you know, this song really needs another single. And then the artists kind of grumbling and dragging their feet, but then going in and making what would turn out to be their biggest hit. That happens all the time. And so it's uh, the, the sort of the dialogue, the back and forth between commerce and artistry and between audience and and institution, I, I think that's like that, that sort of power struggle. That's at the heart of the history of pop music. And that's why I think it's so interesting to kind of study this stuff through the lens of like what got to number one and what didn't.
0: Do any of these stand out to you as maybe being somewhat more, I don't know, historic? Not in terms of which song's better than the other, but, you know, which seem to matter the most? I got the sense, you know, from the chapter in Britney Spears and maybe One More Time that that might be right up there for, for a number of reasons. But I, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts?
4: Yeah, yeah. When, when, I, when I sort of... I I got the idea for a book and Agent kinda of brought it to me. I'd never really thought of my I've been writing online for, you know, twenty years. I never really thought of myself as an author. This is my first book and uh and when he brought me this idea and, and, and we started going back and forth about like, well, how do we do it? What songs would we put in? I just, I remember going back from that meeting, like just driving back from the coffee shop to my house and all these songs kind of popping into my head. A lot of those songs are in the book. Baby one more time is absolutely one of them. There are certain songs that kind of like when they arrive, it's like there, you've never heard of this person. You've never heard this song. And then suddenly it's everywhere. It's, 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 uh, it's, it, it, it Seems to like be part of the air that you're breathing. That was one of those. That that song felt like a comment. I have to imagine that. I want to hold your hands. Felt like that too. I wasn't alive yeah. then. Right. But uh. But um. And then you know, I have a chapter in the book about Soldier Boys. Crank that Soldier Boy, which I was a working critic when that came out. It was a, and I would say probably still is in a lot of circles like a widely disrespected song. Just like, <laughs> right. a pretty simple shouty, like a uh, uh, teenager, like yelling. Like, not even properly rapping, but, like, it has this 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 strange energy that became so divisive and so uh, energizing, and, and it kind of caused this, this instant, like, generation gap. And, and songs like that I, I love. I love when something like that comes along, when it just kind of leaves everybody scratching their heads, but all of a sudden this thing is huge.
0: Yeah, we had another one of those that didn't make the book, but uh, you know, you think of, of Little Nas X, right, and, and Old Town Road, and what a weird yeah. phenomenon that was. It's it's a different yeah, era now,
4: If I were to write the book again, I would have an Old Town Road chapter in there. Yeah. I kind of the I, I talk about Old Town Road a lot in the Soldier Boy chapter because they seem to kind of follow a very similar trajectory. Yeah. Like they're both kind of teenagers in their bedrooms, so putting a song up online, and then all of a sudden it's the biggest thing in the world. But like you know. I when my, on my daughter's like ninth birthday, her school bus driver pulled the bus over to the side of the road and yelled at all the kids for singing "Old Town Road" too loud. <laughs> really? Like that's 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 Beatlemania, you know. Like that's that's when a song becomes its own phenomenon among kids. Like and, and it's always. J- j- you know this stuff is always aimed at kids or at teenagers and and uh and it's always supposed to annoy adults and that's one of the, the beautiful things i think
0: yeah and you know that's what uh, these acts in the 60s did and the 70s did and disco annoyed parents and new wave yeah. and and all of it uh, the you know the stadium rock in the 80s it's always annoying to the parents, I Absolutely. suspect.
4: Yeah. That's, that's the magic of it. That's, that's, uh, that's, it's, it, it. If it's not annoying, then what's it doing? Like, what, how, is it doing its job?
0: Really interesting. Well, the book is called The Number Ones, 20 Chart-Topping Hits that Reveal the History of Pop Music. And I think you're up to 2006, of them, not mistaken, The Number Ones column, uh, reviewing and telling the story of every number one hit at uh, Stereogum.com. An interesting rabbit hole to go down. Uh, Tom Bryan, thanks again for making some time for us here today. Really do appreciate this. Thanks so much for having me. All right, there you go. That's uh, Tom Bryan, as mentioned, senior editor at Stereo Gum, the author of The Number Ones, 20 chart-topping hits that revealed the history of pop music. interesting new data analyses regarding two famous mythical creatures, and to what extent can we explain the persistent belief in and numerous claimed sightings of both Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster? Well, our next guest has attempted to do just that in two recently published studies, one called If It's There, Could It Be a Bear? The other, If It's Real, Could It Be an Eel? Joining us is the uh, aforementioned researcher, author of these two papers. Flo Foxson is a scientist and data Analyst and uh, joins us on the line from the UK. Flo, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, first of all, I mean, your own interest in these these two subjects, I, I suppose that it, you know they fascinate us all to, to some extent, but uh, your position as a, a, an analyst, a researcher, a scientist, where do you come at it from?
5: So what got me interested was actually my partner's a really big fan of the X-Files. And last year I took her on an X-Files themed tour around the UK. And we visited a few places, including Stonehenge and Loch Ness. And as you know, Loch Ness has a similar anthrozoological monster phenomenon. So although we're both skeptics, it got me thinking, have any real scientific studies been done into these things like, you know, the Loch Ness monster and Bigfoot? And there were. So from the 1950s through to the 1990s, there was this kind of subculture and field of research called cryptozoology. So I read up on that and I got interested. And so I decided to have a go at the data myself. But what what data? I mean what what do we
0: have? Where do you even begin here? It's not like we have a, you know, a, a corpse to analyze. I mean
5: what what is it we're looking at? That's a great point. So we don't have any autopsical physical evidence as you say. We do have though a lot of testimonial evidence, so sightings and and eyewitness testimony. Um so one of the things I looked at for Loch Ness was eel catch data. So in the 1970s, there was a biologist called Roy Mackle, and he led an expedition at Loch Ness. Um, and he suggested one of the possible natural explanations for the sightings at Loch Ness were really large eels, which could be, you know, they could look like lake monsters splashing right. about on the surface. So as part of those studies, he uh, collected lots of eels at the loch, and he showed the distribution was skewed. And, and he suggested that maybe that could mean that really large eels are possible at Loch Ness. So I applied probability theory to the eel catch data. And that's just a way of estimating the chances of finding eels of various size there mathematically. Uh, In the case of Bigfoot... Uh, My research used statistics to investigate the possible relationship between um, the number of Bigfoot or Sasquatch sightings in each U.S. state and Canadian province and the populations of black bears in those regions. And I used a kind of model called a regression model, which is just a way of looking at these data mathematically. And I also adjusted for the human population and the land areas in those states and provinces because you'd expect those to have an impact on how many Bigfoot sightings there are, too. Well, let's start with Loch Ness
0: because I, I guess that's the one study that leaves us with um, some uncertainty as, as to what might explain all of this. So a, a possible hypothesis, as you noted, was you know, that maybe people are seeing very large eels. But based on your analysis, that seems uh, an unlikely explanation then.
5: Yeah, so the result of the probability theory told me that there's about a one in 50,000 chance of finding an eel like one meter or about three foot long in the lock. And we know from DNA studies and from various fishing data that there are lots and lots of eels at Loch Ness, maybe 10,000 in the lock at a given time. So after a few generations, we can actually expect a three-foot eel. Um, So that could account for some Loch Ness sightings, but the chances of finding a really big eel, say 20 foot in length, were very, very low, unfortunately, next to impossible. So whatever people are seeing, it probably isn't a giant eel. So where does that leave us uh, on on the Loch Ness Monster question? Well, it's, it's open for debate. Um, I think it's up to the listener to decide. Maybe they should go there for themselves.
0: <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, let's talk about Bigfoot or, or Sasquatch, uh, this mythical creature that is said to, to roam the, um, the, the woods, the forests of both uh, Canada and, and the U.S., as you noted. There's an interesting correlation here that, that you've pointed to and the presence of the population of black bears. So what, what seems to be the connection is best you can tell?
5: Yes, yeah, so what the model told me is that there's a really strong and there's a statistically significant association between black bear populations and Bigfoot sightings across the US and Canada such that on the average you can expect one Bigfoot sighting for every few hundred black bears in a given state or province. In other words, as bear populations increase, so do Bigfoot sightings. So then people are likely
0: seeing black bears would be the uh, the conclusion here.
5: Yeah, one way of interpreting that is to suggest that many Bigfoot sightings are actually misidentified black bears. And that certainly seems likely because bears are known to walk upright on their hind legs bipedally. There's a famous bear in America called Pedals that's known for doing this. And because they have dark fur and they have a large size, they can absolutely look like a giant ape lumbering around in the countryside. But in fairness, uh, correlation does not equal causation, mm-hmm. and other interpretations of this association are possible. For example, Bigfoot might exist, and it might exist in greater numbers where there are more bears. So again, it's up to the listener to decide really what they think is more likely. Right. So, I mean,
0: it's, it's not a, a sense of you're trying to disprove anything, per se, just to, to note this, this perhaps significant correlation.
5: That's right. And I'll admit that I was a little bit disappointed with the results that I found. I, I, you know, I was really hoping that there'd be a high probability of finding a super large eel or, you know, a reasonable probability, um, or that perhaps there was no association between Bigfoot sightings and bear sightings. Um, but that is what the data tell me. And, uh, you know, as an objective scientist, I, I can only report what the data suggest.
0: Well, what kind of reaction have you had so far? I would imagine there's some, some pretty strong camps on both sides of this, right? The, those who want to believe and, and don't appreciate uh, anything that might, to some extent, disprove the existence of these creatures. And I guess on the other side, there are probably scientists who feel that this is all beneath real science. These don't exist. We, we shouldn't waste our time examining such questions.
5: You're absolutely right. And that's the latter point is one thing that kind of frustrated so-called cryptozoologists uh, in previous decades, that the scientific establishment wouldn't really take them seriously. Reactions to this research have been quite mixed. So some academics and conservationists have supported the methods I've used and the conclusions that I drew. They said they were fair and accurate. Of course, there are also believers, as you pointed out, who are quite passionate about this, and they didn't take so kindly to the studies, and they weren't afraid of letting me know that either. But again, I think it's important to clarify what the study does and does not show. The study shows that bear populations are associated with Bigfoot sightings. That does suggest that many Bigfoot sightings are probably bear encounters, but it doesn't conclusively prove or disprove Bigfoot one way or the other. And I myself, I'm skeptical, but I'm not incredulous. I think there's a non-zero chance that Bigfoot exists, but I think it's a very low one. Right. Uh, So in terms
0: of where further research might go from here, is is there a way to sort of build upon the groundwork you've laid here? I, I don't know if this is something you're interested in further pursuing or those who would like to take this a step further, where, where, where would we go from here?
5: I'd love to pursue this further. I think we're always in need of more data. I think we're always in need of more sightings. We're always in need of more environmental DNA studies. Uh, any sort of data like that would be really interesting. And of course, there are also other phenomena that I'd like to investigate. So for example, there's the the Nessie of America, which is Champy in Lake Champlain, And people have also suggested that maybe I should look at the UFO phenomena next. I'm not sure yet, but I'll let you know.
0: Well, we got a Canadian one too. There's Ogopogo in uh, Lake Okanagan. Maybe uh, you could add right. that on your to-do list. <laughs> Certainly one that uh, you know we, we hear a lot about in Canada. But yeah, it, it is interesting because... You know, these these phenomena, whatever they are, um, you know, they, they go back decades, even longer. Like there's whatever it is, it, it's something that's that's very long established. It's something worth understanding, not necessarily whether these creatures exist,
5: but why people believe they do. It, it is a fascinating phenomena, isn't it? yeah no that's absolutely right i mean i'm fascinated by it i think it's very human in a way and i think it, it's like you say it's in canada the us the uk all over europe and asia uh, it's kind of a, a a human-wide phenomenon that we are interested in animals we're interested in nature we're interested in monsters and myths and legends it's kind of the jurassic park effect right yeah. you know when that movie came out everyone became interested in dinosaurs and monsters i think that really captures the human imagination
0: Really interesting. Well, we'll be there for now. Uh, Flo, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really do appreciate this. Thank you for having me. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.